he came to me before this, and it was a 200-meter race at ASU, and he asked, how do you want me to run this? Like, how fast do you want me to run? I said, what, <laughs> what do you mean how fast? It's a race. Like, like, you just go out and run it as fast as you can. That's what we do when we race, right? I mean, it's, it, it, isn't that the goal? I said, ah, I, don't, I don't know about that, coach. I said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to run the 120 as fast as you possibly can. With you know, with this, the same sort of strategy that we're talking about. So it's a deep excel, kind of just uh, relax through the middle of the bend and then hit the end of the bend as hard as you possibly can. And then you can just shut it down. So that's exactly what he did. Like he ran the perfect bend. Like he just did it absolutely perfect. Shut it down and ran 2016 into a negative 1.6. So, oh, okay. From that day, I figured out how to coach that guy. This guy is an outlier of outliers. One of the things that makes this guy special is that type of ability. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Stahlberg, joined as always by my collaborator on this show and so much more, Steve Magnus. As promised at the end of last week's episode, we have got Stu McMillan back on the show for part two of our conversation. For those of you that haven't listened to last week's conversation, we highly recommend that you do. You can do it right now, or if you'd prefer to, to hear this one first, that's fine too. Um, so with that, we're going to dive right in. So Stu, thanks again for making time so that we could continue. Uh, last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the actual craft of coaching. And we just touched the surface on your experience over the last, I don't know, two, three decades working with people that are truly the best in the world at what they do on the biggest stages. And that's where we want to focus today. So my first question is, what what do you do, if anything, to prepare an athlete to compete at an Olympic final? Let's just start there. Like, Let's go for the big kahuna. And, and not physically, right? We know they're going to do workouts, they're going to train they're going to recover. They're going to have performance therapy, uh, performance physical therapy. But from the psychological side of things, do you have like a framework or a heuristic? And, and the last thing I'll caveat this with is I know that no two athletes are the same, but like what's your pattern matching in terms of trying to get someone in the right headspace? Because you've done this so many times. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's a really good question. It's a, re- it's a really challenging thing for a coach because all athletes are very different. And that specific arousal level of an Olympic final or a first Olympic Games cannot be replicated at all (laughs) in any way, physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, however you want to try to replicate it. It's impossible. Um, So you don't truly know how folks are going to uh, compete at that level until they're actually at that level. Now that, that, that said, that doesn't mean that we just sort of, you know, cross our fingers and hope for the best, you know, we, we try to do what we can as well as we can to ensure that they are prepared. Now, one way in which, um, sort of I'll take somewhat issue to the, the framing of the question is the separation of the physical and the mental, and I don't tend to, to separate them. It's the same. So if, if um, we try to prepare athletes to compete, and that means everything around what compete means, that means being ready to compete uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever that is. It's, uh, so how do we do that is, is the question. And, you know, some, well, you know, not just some, all athletes, as you said, are very individual. All of them respond to different levels of arousal very differently. And I don't know what this is. If we can bottle what some people have, you know, we'd, we'd make billions here. But some have, they almost require a certain level of arousal to be able to even compete normally. You know, just an, at, at an average level. You know, I, I had an athlete, Andre de Grasse, who, who had three, three Olympic medals when I was coaching him in 2016. And honestly, 
he he required super high levels of arousal just to get any sort of intensity out of him. You know, it's a, so if you the way in which we look at this is multiple different levels of arousal or pressure or whatever other word you want to use here. Uh, number one would be just doing a repetition a repetition by yourself on the track. No expectations from you, no expectations from the coach. You're just going out for a run. It could be a jog around the, your block. It could be a, a 200-meter rep or 100-meter rep on the track, whatever. Very little arousal there. Um, if you're doing it, maybe now you're getting timed by a coach. That's a little bit more arousal. Now you're doing it maybe with a couple of training partners. The arousal level's gone up again. Now you're doing it with a couple of training partners, but maybe it's a time trial in training. Now maybe you know you've, you're in a small competition against uh, you know some people that you don't know. The arousal level's gone up uh, again. Maybe now it's a national level competition, and there's a couple hundred people watching you. Add some more arousal, some more information into this system. Maybe now it's an international competition, but it's not a, a super hard one. And you just continue up this this um, this arousal uh, uh, ladder until you finally at the Olympic Games, right? So we try to organize our training to to. to to first of all, try to appropriately load where the athlete is at that specific moment in time and just push them somewhat out of, outside of their comfort zone. So if you have, say, a skill that isn't um, stable at a really low arousal level, then we're probably not going to put that athlete into an international competition and expect the skill to be stable. Now, what I was going back to before was, say, a guy like Andre – Andre can, can, can run at all of these low levels of arousal and look pretty trash. Like, honestly, like it's just not enough excitement for him. So he's just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, even a local competition, even a national competition, even some international competitions, that's not enough arousal for him to, to be able to squeeze all of the stuff we need out of him. He almost requires like a, a world championship semifinal or a world championship final or an Olympics semifinal, Olympics final to be able to, you know, to uh, compete at his best. And his, his, his results is actually, if you look at his competitive results, they, it plays out exactly that way. You know, and this, you know, ideally that's the type of athlete you have, right? It, it drives a coach and Steve, you'll know, it drives a, a coach bonkers when you're training these guys because you just can't get anything out of them. But I'd rather have that and then be able to compete well than the exact opposite, right? The great competitors, but just not being able to compete well. So it's, it's first and foremost, it's understanding where their potential sort of challenge point is, where they are on this continuum of arousal that's required of their event, trying to challenge it appropriately and continue to push them towards the point where they are eventually going to have to be, which is you know, ideally Olympic final. Um, that all said is, you know, these guys race uh, an Olympic final. They're not going to change the uh, date of the race because the athlete that I'm coaching isn't stable yet at that skill. So they got to get ready for it regardless, right? So there's some things that we can do, you know, in the, in the short term, you know, week, you know, days, weeks and months leading up to an Olympics that, you know, one, one major heuristic would be we don't change anything. We don't do anything new. All the stuff that we're going to be doing in preparation for that race is stuff that the, the athlete's really confident in and comfortable with. Uh, and then uh, the other C that we sort of work towards there in the, in, the, in the last few weeks is consistency. So we're just making sure that we're consistent with all of the work that we're doing, all of the input that we're inputting, all of the people that are around. There's no new people at the Olympics. We make sure that it's the same people. If it's going to be different people at the Olympics, then we make sure that we introduce those different people a little bit earlier in the process. So there's nothing new there. Um, and, you know, and then we just uh, sit back and, 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 and cross our fingers and, and hope for the best. <laughs> so I, I want to piggyback on that, that description of Andre, because I think you nailed the, nailed it with this will drive coaches nuts. And as you're telling the story, I'm thinking about, you know, athlete I coached at, at the university of Houston, who 800 meter runner, who would literally run like 155 all season. And then the conference championship shows up and he's like 150 on the dot or like faster no matter what. And you're just like, what? Where was this? So my question is is twofold on athletes like that who are gamers when they show up. And that's what you want as a coach, but often just kind of struggle in those low arousal. 
two two part question is a as a coach how do you keep yourself from going crazy from questioning things from wondering like oh is this, is this athlete really on the right trajectory because their performances don't give you that feedback and then part b is how do you keep that athlete from doubting, wondering, well, am I going to be able to do this this time, even though my results so far haven't, you know, shown that I'm, I'm ready to go or what have yeah. you. See, so the first part of that is, is we look at probably rather than judging things and, and setting up outcome KPIs, we look at process KPIs. So with, for example, Andre, we, we would be really, um, strategic, I guess would be the question or the, the word here of the type of processes that we want him to work on throughout the course of say a day, a week or a cycle, knowing that the outcome KPIs for some people really important for Andre, they weren't like we said, it isn't Andre. I want you to run this, this one fifty and 14, six, rather than I want you running this, uh, for 115 14 6 I want you to accelerate super deep into the bend here and make sure that you're coming off the bend and you're just screaming off the bend and whatever the time is it is I don't I don't care at that point I really don't care so we're just making sure with a guy like him it's much more process oriented with with others it's okay the, the goal here is I want you to really hit some high high intensities today and let's see what we can get on these 150s can we get down to 14 4 14 5 and that's you know most of the sprinters in fact would be that way where with andre we had to break things up and even we had to do that steve even in races right so my my first outdoor race with him was i was a little bit nervous um first indoor race um i was kind of nervous but i'd only been coaching him at that point uh, for two months and he went out uh, we went Mount millrose games around 60 and he won it and it was, okay, great. So this is, this could sort of confirm to me that we were on the right track. It confirmed to him that we were on the right track as well. He came up to me after the races. I guess you know what you're doing. So, well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out at the end of the season, but so far so good. And then on the lead up to our first race, honestly, he was getting dusted in everything. Blocks, speed work, speed endurance work, any sort of enduring work. You know, and I was still trying to work out how best to work him, right? I'm still kind of just training him like everybody else, you know, and, and not really understanding what makes this guy super unique yet. So I hadn't really come to terms with how best to coach him. And I'm just going into this first, and, but he, but what kept me sane, by the way, and kept me calm was how calm he was. He says, don't worry, coach. I'm all right. I'm good. It's okay. It's no, no problem. So I said, he came to me before this, and it's a 200 meter race at ASU. And he asked me, how do we, how do you want me to run this? Like how fast do you want me to run? I said, what, what do you mean how fast? It's a race. Like, like you just go out and run it as fast as you can. That's what we do when we race, right? I mean, it's, it, it, isn't that the goal? I said, ah, I, don't, I don't know about that, coach. I said, all right, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to run the 120 as fast as you possibly can. With, you know, with this, the same sort of strategy that we're talking about. So it's a deep excel, kind of just uh, relax through the middle of the bend and then hit the end of the bend as hard as you possibly can. And then you can just shut it down. So that's exactly what he did. Like he ran the perfect bend. Like he just did it absolutely perfect. Shut it down and ran 2016 into a negative 1.6. So, oh, okay. Then from that day, I figured out how to coach that guy, right? That was, all right, that, this is no longer, a, he, he's a, he, this guy is an outlier of outliers. And that's what, one of the things that makes this guy special is that type of ability, right? So it's, um, you know, so, so that speaks to your first part of the question. The second part is he just he wasn't driven that way. And most of the guys that I find like that, Steve, aren't. You know, they have such inherent confidence in their abilities and they're such inherent confidence in their ability to step up when required. You know, another guy who was like this, one of my closest friends, Donovan Bailey, like he, he just didn't care until he, it was time to care. You know, he didn't care about small meets. He didn't care about training. He was working on stuff, right? He was extremely uh, focused on the process. Like, what did he need to do? What was required of him to, to be the Olympic champion? This, 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 and this, okay? And that's what he focused on. 
and nothing else mattered. It wasn't outcome KPIs. It's, that's, that's not what he talked to, to Dan Path about. It wasn't about that. It was about some technical things and how he left the blocks, a few other things. And he knew, you know, he just had so much confidence in, in his ability that he, that another guy like Andre, that he just required higher levels of arousal to bring that out. And that's, you know, that played out obviously in, in, uh, you know, in Olympic, um, gold medal and a world record at the time. It's a trap that Steve and I talk about quite a bit because you see this um, not just in sport, but in other arenas as well, where sometimes you overtry in practice or you overtry on things that don't really matter. And that's from insecurity. It's almost like you have to prove to yourself that you're good enough. And uh, it's just really interesting how your observation is that the folks that that struggle to try in those situations are actually the, the folks with all the self-belief and in, in the confidence. That's such an important point. Hey, like it's yeah. that, that so many athletes don't get that. Like yeah. they, they put the focus in the wrong stuff. They've got all these, you know, and metrics are important. There's a bunch of metrics that, that you know, it, in track and field, like there's just this, 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 you know, they get so focused on all the stuff that doesn't really matter. What matters is how you race. That's it. You know, and but you know the you know coaches doing these quadrathlons and it's just fun stuff. That's all it is. But you know the insecure athletes, the insecure coaches, put so much focus on that stuff at the expense, in my in my mind, of the stuff that they sh- that they should be focused on. But they're not focused on that because they're insecure about that. And that's you know you've got as a coach, you have to identify that and then put in strategies to try to you know combat that. But it, it's such an important uh, point you made there, Brad. Yeah, I mean, I see it all the time in my own crappy training. Uh, sometimes when I'm feeling insecure, like in powerlifting, I'll chase a bigger deadlift number in training just to prove to myself that I can get it. But I would have had better form and less physiological toll and gotten the same benefit out of pulling 365 for the set instead of 405. And I'm just an idiot. I'm an insecurity when I do that. So it, 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 I know firsthand. All right, where I wanted to shift gears to is... Um, I know something about your approach at Altus is um, really unique, and it's this notion of trying to define all the variables that you can control and then control them. And this can manifest in having chiropractors and performance physical therapists on site at workouts and even at competitions. So it makes sense. The stakes are so high, you want to control all the controllables. How do you think about making sure that an athlete has enough flexibility where if something goes wrong, they don't freak out? The chiropractor gets a speeding ticket or someone in their family gets ill and they can't be there. Um, The organizers tell you that you're allowed to have four coaches in the prep room, but then for some reason it gets changed to three. I'm sure you've had experiences happen like this over your, your long career, how do you make sure that yes, you're controlling the controllables and yes, you're dialing everything in as possible as much as possible, but at the same time, make sure that athletes can handle the inevitable stuff that's going to come up over the course of a career. So we try to frame that first and foremost as a one large complex system. And I talk to them about the importance of understanding performance through that as you don't need to be perfect in any of the parts within that system. You just need to be pretty good at all of them. And if you're pretty good at all of them, you're going to do really well. And that's literally our goal. Our goal is not to be perfect in any part of that system. And there's four major parts, right? So there's the, there's the training, the physical training. There's the recovery from that physical training. There's the fueling. And then there's an athlete's mental health, however you wanted to define what that means. Right. And those are the kind of the four burners, if you will, here. And we just, you know, I give them and I think this this alleviates a little bit of pressure from them. I give them the goal of being an eight out of 10 on each of them. That's it. I don't want them to be 10 out of 10 on anything, because guess what? If you're 10 out of 10 on one of them, chances are you're going to be a four out of 10 on one of the others. So it's we want to be eight out of 10 on physical, eight out of 10 on fueling, eight out of 10 on your mental health and eight out of 10 on your recovery. And that give, that takes away some of then the that virus that you know, that can 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 creep in this perfectionism virus where they think they have to have everything dialed in perfectly. So if that is taken away, that pressure is taken away. I find that then that that doesn't become a problem. That then you know the coach can't show up and 
you know, a c- coach can't make it or whatever, or doesn't have the pass. And this has happened, right? I've come, I've gone to meets and I haven't had a coaching pass and been able to get into the warm up area. That's a, that's a problem. But you know, if 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 there's sort of if they're thought or led to believe that it doesn't have to be perfect, I can still do what I can do, then I can deal with this type of of issue here. So that's I kind of got, the way that I, 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 I don't want to turn this into a bromance, but I just got chills down my spine when you were talking about the the complex system approach because I never heard it framed that way, and I'm going to steal that from my own executive coaching practice. That is so true. Like all you're going to do if you try to over-engineer and perfect a complex system is fuck it up. That's like the only thing that you're going to do. I mean, that's that's complexity research to a T. There's too many moving parts that are interacting with each other. So if you just identify that, call a spade a spade, set the expectation that that's the case, and then do what you can to make the system good enough, of course that's going to put the person in the best position for success. Um, and it makes your job as a coach easier. But again, comes back to that confidence versus insecurity. It takes a lot of confidence on you and the athlete's part to not do what you think you should do, which is, oh, I'm an Olympian. Like, you know, you see these bros on, on the internet that aren't even real athletes that need to do their perfect cold plunge and all this stuff. And, and that's just insecurity. But when you're a true athlete, you, like the, the people that actually might need to do all that stuff, it takes even more confidence to know that if you miss a little bit, you're okay. It's okay. Yeah. In fact, if you miss a week, it's okay. If you miss two weeks, it's probably okay. You know, in the grand scheme of things. Listeners, I really want you to like to hear this because we have a lot of type A pushers that are really good at what they do, right? This is this this is this is so important. If Stu can tell his athletes this, then y'all can tell yourself this in in the teams that you work with in your respective domains. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not saying like don't care about the details, but performance is complex. And if you try to nail every single detail, always you're gonna you're gonna mess yourself up. Yeah, the the you know, and again, the one one of the lessons that we talk about very early in in the season with most of the athletes is is first of all, I introduce the 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 idea of this being a system, number one. And what is a system? So I have to give them a little bit of systems theory, right? That system has a bunch of component parts that all interact and interrelate to serve a common purpose or function. Now, the common purpose or function here for you, for most of the athletes I, I, I work with, is to run really fast. And there's a bunch of component parts that interact and interrelate to serve that purpose. What are all those parts? And we can break that down, right? We, well, the way I break it down, or what we break it down, is that we have these four major component parts. Each of those are systems in and of themselves. And each of those systems have component parts as well. And all of those component parts interact to serve a common purpose, right? So the, the physical system has weights, it has running, it has, um, you know, different types of running, it has jumping and have all these things. And they all interact and interrelate to make you a better, hopefully, physical being, and so on and so forth with all the other component parts, right? So but, but again, this can can become super complex, really quickly, really easily. But you just have to remember, our goal here is just to be an eight out of 10 on these. That's all. We don't have to, we don't have to get super detailed in. We just need to be on our physical system, an eight out of 10. What does an eight out of 10 mean? And I ask them, what does eight out of 10 mean for you? What is your system here? What are, what are your expectations of yourself in the physical realm of your system to be an eight out of 10? What does that mean for you? And then they'll write all that out. And then what does it mean for fueling? What does it mean for recovery? And what does it mean for mental health? So then now they're building their own strategies in, within their system. So two things. I love this conversation. Um, part of it reminds me of this conversation I wrote about actually in Do Hard Things, but from track coach uh, Fred Wilt, who's famous track coach, was coaching Buddy Edelin at the time. Buddy Edelin went on to set the world record in the marathon in the, I think it was 1950s. And before a race, you know, Wilt wrote in the notes on Edelin's training, Edelin had went out and done like a run and workout when he was supposed to rest. And uh, Wilt goes, this is a manifestation of insecurity. <laughs> and then just scolds him for for being like, you're about, you're like, you're fit. Just trust it. 
And that always stuck with me because like here you have a guy who's, you know, going on to break the world record, one of the best in the world. And it's like you still battle with this insecurity. So I think what you're talking about, Stu, is like at the heart of this. And and what I get as a coach, if I put on my coaching hat is like as coaches, we can either take away and alleviate some of that by stopping that pull towards perfectionism or we dump more on it. And I think too often from our insecurity we dump it on the athletes, right? Because, you know, for example, I'll use the track example. I've seen this so many times where it's like, you know, your warm up needs to be at exactly this time and go through exactly this moment. And at this time, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And what happens is that all works great until they get to an Olympic Games and you're stuck in a tiny room for 40 minutes and you can't move, right? And they, they, they kind of go off. So, you know, my question to you on this is, how do you deal with your own security and insecurity around this and not put it on the athlete? Oh, that's such a great question. Because um, as you know, we see that in the track and field world all the time, right? It manifests generally in more work. You know, if, if you see an athlete or an athlete or a group of athletes doing a ton of work, that's because of the insecurities of the coach generally, right? And if they're doing more and more work, the coach is getting more and more insecure. So it's, but it's hard. It, it is really, really hard, right? Because, you know, that is almost human nature to think this way that, okay, I'm doing this and I just do more of this and it's going to be better. Whatever that this is, you know, it's whatever. But it's, it's something I have to constantly remind myself of. The goal isn't to do more. The goal is to do as much as I can while still being able to adapt positively from it. That's the goal. So as, as long as I just commit, you know, remind myself that of that heuristic every time I sit down to write a training cycle, I'm okay. You know, and, and yeah, we, we sometimes, Steve, and you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll have made mistakes like this as well, but we do make mistakes and we maybe just push it a little bit too far. And that's some, that's generally our, our best teacher. Okay. We've, we've put a little bit too much work into this cycle. We haven't seen a positive adaptation that we expected. So let me just pull back a little bit. And that all that, all that does is just let us know where those guardrails are. Okay. So this is right now, my guardrail is here. Yes. I'm maybe still going to try to push the envelope a little bit in the future, but right now here's my guardrails. This is what I'm allowed to do right now and still be able to positively adapt uh, to it. So it's, it's just something that um, I think we just have to constantly remind ourselves of, you know, and and it, it goes to, you know, us as coaches, what is our goal, right? I mean, and if, if that's not aligned with the, the athletes that we're working with, then there's a problem. That's spot on. It's that awareness. And then I, I've got one other question for you that's kind of tangentially related to this is you're in a sport too, in a situation where it's not like you're one-off coaching, you know, an individual. You coach a team, but it's unique. It's not like a baseball team where if the team wins, everybody's happy. You're coaching individuals who are often competitors against each other. So if someone succeeds, they literally push can push someone down in that Olympic final or what have you. And they're all really freaking good and all striving relatively for the same kind of you know outcome, medal, whatever have you, make final. How do you deal with that on, on, on a team, like the ego, the competitiveness, and make sure it's, it's pointed in the right direction? And, and the insecurity. And then stick. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, you know, that's building the, the right, or the, the right, the, uh, the appropriate environment to take advantage of those egos and those insecurities is, 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 I don't know a, a good way to put this, but it's, it's, it's kind of the art of things, isn't it? Like it, there's, there's, there's no objective way to do that. First of all, you need to ensure that you recruited um, appropriately. Like if you've got three big alphas and they're all from the same country, that's not going to work. It's definitely not going to work. It probably won't work if you've got two big alphas. 
but it might, if from the same country, but it might if they're from, you know, different countries because they're not, then they're not competing to get onto the same team. And that's a big thing, right? When you know, it's, it's always been important to us. You know, we started out our, 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 before we became Altus, our name was the World Athletic Center. And in 2016 Olympic Games, we had 33 athletes from 21 different countries. So it's always been important for us to have a really international group because of that reason. Because I th- then these are your competitors, but they're only competitors when you've actually made it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's then they can bring out the best in each other when they're training. But if you've got a bunch of people from the same, uh, same country who are competing with you for the same team, I just see that as being overly problematic. I just don't think that's going to work, like, especially in, in male sprints where you've got, you know, the egos are high and the insecurities are high, both of them, massive, right? It just, and that's, that's great. As I said, that's great if you've got one from the U.S., one from the U.K., one from Canada, one from South Africa, and, then, and one from Ivory Coast. Perfect. You know, you've got a, you've got a great training environment that, in that case. And that's, that's kind of what Dan had, you know, back in the day in the 90s when I was first starting out. You know, and I sort of learned that from him. Very international group. Very clear who the alpha was. Very clear who the sort of second level alphas were. Everyone understood sort of the role in this big community. And you've got to, you know, as, as a coach, you've got to understand who's, you know, who is the alpha and ensure that he feels or she feels like they continue being the alpha through time. Um, so it's, um, but I'm not saying, you know, it, 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 there's been times where that hasn't worked as well, <laughs> you know, so it's, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like you've got a bed cover that's just slightly too small for the bed. You, you can't cover the entire body. You know, you, you know, there might be, you know, your toes might be peeking out the bottom. So you just can't do everything for all, all the people all the time, but you just try and do your best. So I want to take that and, and build on it a little bit. Because there's obviously like the the inter-team dynamics and potential rivalries. There's all the pressure that we spoke about. And then there's, of course, beating people that run for different countries or that are part of uh, different premier training groups. And in many cases, sprint sports, power sports, people are peaking well before the age of 30. So these are young adults. In some cases, they're under 25. Their prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed. It's something that, Stu, we've talked about and texted about, I don't know, probably for hours offline, and I want to discuss it now with our audience, which is the mental health of these athletes. And I'm going to just frame the question or maybe even make a statement and then let you dive in. Offline, if I remember right, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, so this is how I remember where we both kind of came out. And I, I can speak for Steve here too, because Steve and I talk about this all the time. It used to be that the pendulum was so far away from considering anything to do with mental health that you'd grit it out, you'd push through, you'd repress, you'd be tough. And now the pendulum has swung completely in the other direction, where mental health is not only a priority, but perhaps it's such a priority that it's almost a blind priority where we're doing things that actually hurt an athlete's mental health. The example particularly being around anxiety and having people avoid things that make them anxious, which is a, a, a pro at anxiety at experiencing anxiety is like precisely what you don't want to do. That's how anxiety gets worse. You don't want to force someone when they have 10 out of 10 fear and they're, they're having suicidal ideation because of it to do something that's dangerous, but you also can't hold people back. Like evidence-based therapy literally says, do the thing that makes you anxious in a supporting, caring environment. So with that, I'm curious how you think about this balance of, yes, paying more attention to and supporting athletes' mental health, realizing the immense pressure, realizing that it's probably more intense than ever with social media and all these other things surrounding performance, while at the same time, helping athletes face their fears instead of avoiding them. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a lot there, isn't there, Brad? So... It, it, it part of this goes back to what we were talking about previously around the system and the purpose and the function of that system. And we ha- and and what I said to the, the at the end of my last answer to Steve's question there about ensuring that the coach's motivation lines up with the athlete's motivation. 
what the athlete is expecting, wanting from the sport is the same as what the coach is wanting, expecting from the sport. And that's something that's really important. Um, and something that, you know, we coaches often assume that athletes are in the sport because of performance. But, I, you know, and, and Steve, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this. But I would, if you, if you ask the athletes, like really, and you, and you got a, an, an honest, open answer from them on this question, why do you do this sport? Why do you compete? Why do you do this? Very often it's not that. It's not because they want to, you know, go to the Olympic Games or they want to perform a certain thing. So much of it is about finding out more about themselves. It's personal journeys, personal challenges that trying to work through. It's friend and peer groups. It's uh, traveling. It's being outside. It's exercise. It's all of these different things where I feel like a lot of coaches just focus on the first one. It's just about performance. I got to squeeze as much as as much performance out of you as I possibly can, and I don't care what what it takes. And I don't care what it does to your mental health and what it does to your, the rest of your life afterwards. So I think it's first and foremost, it's, it's making sure that we're having open and honest conversations with the athletes to ensure that we're aligned with the purpose of this system. Now, most or many athletes that we talk to, if, they're, if, you're, if you start working with an athlete who's 18, for example, they're going to bias towards or, or default towards performance because they've been told that, right? They've been told to think about that. So, so the, but the first step then is just have them to start asking those questions of themselves, right? And that doesn't mean it's, it can't be performance. Yeah, for many people, it is performance. But also there's introducing the idea that there's many other reasons to do this and there's many other benefits to competing in sport and to training with people than just going to the Olympic Games. I think that has the potential to be a game changer for many. And I just don't feel like many do it or not enough do it. They just focus on the performance priority and often to the detriment of everything else. And I feel, as I said before, is, is if we just reframe this and look at this as a system, and it's got all these different parts in this system, and performance is one part of it. It's just one part of the training Part. That's it. But you've got all these, these other things that are also really important. And this systems, complex systems, nest within other complex system. So you as an athlete, Brad Stolberg, athlete who deadlifts, lives within Brad Stolberg, the person that does all of this other stuff. Right. And that's really important for these guys to understand. And they, many of them were actually forced to do this when the pandemic hit, right? Because many, many elite athletes just have, they don't really have the ability to look too far beyond the end of their noses, but they were forced to do that when the pandemic hit. And that's, uh, and you saw that a lot of athletes struggled with that. Yeah. One, one quick thing. What's fascinating is the, the most, um, the most public cases of mental health challenges with athletes recently have been Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka. And that's gymnastics and tennis, which are two sports that are known for brutal treatment of athletes starting at the age of six. Parts are parts. You know, you go train in Florida as a tennis phenom and you are just a tennis phenom and we're going to get everything out of you until we can't. Gymnastics, it's even worse. Um, I don't have anything to like say about that other than it, it tracks completely with what you're saying that it's not surprising that we're seeing some of the the most public big breakdowns in sports where starting from childhood, that person is just viewed as a part by the organizations and the coaches around them. And, and in the case of gymnastics, people have gone to jail for this mm-hmm. um, and, and, and for other harms inflicted on athletes too. You know, I think you made some great points there, Stu, because it really comes back to like, the entire sporting system is set up around like this performance identity, right? And it shoves it down the athletes so that they think, oh, this is what it is. And what happens is you often get athletes who like performance, performance, 
their identity constricts around it because that's what they're told. And that's what we're told to to be good. I mean, I remember growing up as an athlete, it's like, well, you got to go all in. You got to make this your only priority. You've got to prioritize this and do this. And you're like, oh, great, I want to be good. So let's let's do this. And it's not till you know something happens or later when you kind of get to zoom out and and expand. And I'm wondering, and and even I saw this as as a college coach because I'd start to ask the question. I'd be like, you know, well, what are you trying to get at? Like, what do you want from this sport? Or another way to get at it, and as I would ask people, well, are you going to continue running after your college career is over? Not not just running professionally or post collegiately, but just run in general. And you'd see a wide variety of responses where some people are like, oh yeah, I always run, and other people are like. No, I just do this because like, you know, I love competing or being part of a team or whatever. I'm not going to run once I get done. And I think we forget so much that these myriad of other things. So I, I don't know if I have a big question off of it, except like, what's the, how do, how do we kind of zoom out and in a, in a world that everything shouts at us to go towards performance, we realize that there's other reasons, other avenues. Yeah, I don't think we can change the system because that's the system that we're all operating within. So all we can do is the individuals within that system can change themselves, you know, or just be a little bit more aware of some of the struggles and many of the personal identity issues that many athletes have, right? So first, if we have to understand that. It happens a lot. Anybody, any coach has been working in, in sport for more than a decade or so has seen that. They've seen athletes come in and then retire and struggle. It happens, right? Because there, there is definitely this identity which is so tied up in being an athlete because that's all they've known. Most elite athletes have been the best athlete at every age group in their community. So and they've always been thought of as the athlete, the runner, the basketball player, the football player, or whatever, right? So their identity is so wrapped up in that. So how do we change that? That's We have to introduce other things to them and get them interested in other things to set them up for their 40, 50, or 60 years of life after of them being an athlete, right? And many of them haven't even had those uh, thoughts yet because no one's asked them. Nobody's encouraged them to think about their identity as a human being outside of their identity as an athlete, right? So it's first and foremost is us, is as us as coaches to start just having those conversations and just ensure that they understand how important this is. It can't, it can't be all about sport. And I, even my, even my professional guys, right? So the professional guys and girls, you know, the ones who are making, you know, six figures a year, I make sure that they've got other interests outside of what they're doing with sport. I make sure that they are, they're spending time with these other interests. I make sure that they're thinking about the things that they could and should be doing after their careers. Some were successful with that and some were not. And in some, and it, you know, I go back to earlier parts of my career when for me, it's about performance. You know, for me, it was how can I squeeze as much potential out of this athlete as I possibly can? How can I help this athlete win the Olympics? Because that was the assumption that the goal was for them. And if, yeah, maybe it was like, it is part, it, it is important for them, right? But there's other things in life that are important for this athlete. And then there should be other things then that are important for me. But what we've seen, and you know, I alluded to this last week, right? I've, um, I've coached two athletes now that have ended their own lives after their careers, both of them struggling with what's next, you know, their entire identity as you said, was so tied up in being an athlete that five, 10 years later, this is all they know. And now they can't be an athlete anymore. What do I do? And they, you know, both of them had, had, um, had their challenges with drugs and alcohol and, and eventually ended their own lives because of, because of those challenges and those struggles. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't always end that way. Uh, there's, there's other, there's, other instances where athletes are, are transitioning into a post-athletic career and, ch- and are challenged by that for half a decade or so and, and come out and they're actually okay. But we are, I think one of our jobs as coaches of athletes while they're competing is to better prepare them for their post-competition time. And, I, and I, 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 honestly, I struggled with that for a long time because I thought as myself as I'm the sport coach 
my expertise is in sport coaching. I'm going to try to be the best sport coach for you. But zooming out a little bit and, and, and you know, maybe defining what I meant by sport coach better has enabled me to be, I think, put a little bit more emphasis on the bigger picture, the bigger system. I'm going to draw um, uh, an interesting parallel that I think many of our listeners that um, are elite at other things than sport will uh, will resonate with. And when you were explaining this, I couldn't help but think of the venture capital model in startups and how really good VCs care about the entrepreneur as a person and they want to set that entrepreneur up for success even if the company fails. But most VCs, it's the same thing. You got 40 people in your training group. I got 40 companies in my fund. I'm just going to throw 40 eggs at a wall. And if one doesn't crack, I return 10x on the fund. And as a result, what do you get? You get all kinds of unethical companies that are VC funded. And you get a lot of entrepreneurs that struggle with depression, anxiety, drug use, and and suicide. And um, a really good VC or at least an ethically good VC is able to see beyond that. And some of the best VCs that I know, they're like, my job is to coach and mentor that person. And if the company makes money, it's a good byproduct of that. Now they still have to make money because otherwise they can't raise a fund, but their, their mentality is like the whole person. And you know, if that whole person does well, they'll probably lead a better company, but it takes a lot of maturity to not just be like, Oh, you know, this fund raised $50 million to, to really have a good return. We need to return $500 million. So how can we squeeze as much as possible out of these entrepreneurs in the next eight years and not really think beyond that? Um, so it's not just sport. I mean, this is endemic in all of society. Yeah, it's the perfect analogy. Uh, you know, I'm sure Steve was chuckling to himself when you were saying that, as I was. I mean, that's you've defined coaching track and field. In a nutshell, <laughs> but it's the same. I mean, it, 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 but it is like Steve and I always say. But it's why Steve and I get along, and I don't have the the deep track and field background. Like per, elite performance is elite performance, yeah, yeah. And the the domains have all kinds of specialization, but some of these big patterns you just see them everywhere. Yeah, I and I, I don't have a, like a real good idea here, or a real big idea, or a real solid. Um, you know, answer for your question, Steve. It's just, I, th- I think it starts as, as always does with education and educating coaches and understanding what our jobs are here, what our goals are. You know, it, it happens. And it, one of the problems is, is so much of this is happening while athletes are kids and they're being coached by volunteers. And it's not until maybe the athletes, you know, in their, their middle to late teens where they start working with professional coaches that may even have an idea of this type of thinking. You know, it's, it's so many kids come into their 12, 13, 14, 15, maybe even joining their first adult group. And they're already have gone through all of this stuff. It was so much has just been on their head. You know, I, you know, I, I've coached many sort of young phenoms, you know, who've, totally fallen out of love with the sport and don't do the sport because of the love for it anymore at all. They're almost doing it out of expectation or only, only doing it because Anna, this is what I do. This is my identity. This is the only thing I know how to do. I'm just going to continue doing it. And those are, you know, it's, I, you know, for, for me, you know, I've, I've, I've coached for a long time and I've, I've had um, athletes do really well and perform really well. And, for me, though, the most important thing, when I look back in my coaching career, the stuff that I'm most proud of is the athletes that have grown through the relationship and have grown into really good people. You know, and whether that has anything to do with me or not, I'm not saying it does, but I'm just saying part of that is, you know, I feel like that marrying that was still trying to affect their performance positively is is sometimes challenging, right? But you have to, it starts with, what do you want from this? And always check that. Always check. What do you want from this week? What do you want from this cycle? What do you want from this year? What do you want from this quad? What do you want from this sport? What do you want from your life? Keep zooming out and zooming in and just making sure that we're always aligned, I think is so important. I know we got to wrap up soon, but I want to ask like one quick clarifying question there. What do you do if someone comes to you and they say, all I want is a gold medal. It's all I care about. It's all I want. I'll do anything for it. Yeah, it depends. It, it, how old are you? You know, if you're if you're 20, 
chances are that's what you think because you haven't asked any questions yet. You, you know, I didn't start doing work on myself until I was sort of in my mid-20s. You know, that's when I started thinking about me as a person in life and why I'm here, right? So most of these kids haven't even thought that way yet, right? So, but, I, but I'll start having those conversations with, with them. And it's, the way I do that is, again, through the system, right? Performance is a system. All these things have to be in a line. Uh, you don't have to be perfect on all of these, but just make sure that you're not put. You don't not trying to be ten out of ten on the on the training part, and a two out of ten on the mental health, or three out of ten on the recovery. If if we just have a more balanced system, I think it's it's there's gateways there to introduce conversations about bigger picture things. Yeah, I I think this is such an important conversation, Stu, and I think you hit the nail on the head with that zooming out and realizing. <laughs> that it's about so much more than just the performance, 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 and that that growth as individuals. And that also it's like holding that tension with like, we want growth, but yes, performance matters to many and some in the system and holding that at once. And, you know, really it comes down to as us as coaches as can we adopt some sort of similar mindset and have more coaches who who do so versus get trapped into this, when at all costs, winning is all that matters. Performance is the only thing. So, but the, I, the, the system is set up to reward that, and I, that's the problem. So that's why we can't change that system. We yeah, can only change we're having this conversation. You know, seriously, like that—that's why we're kindred spirits. And hopefully, yeah. if we have ten listeners of this podcast and roles of power and whatever they do and however they work with people, and this has an impact on them, then it's the best we can do. You know, it's my boy. Robert Persig, hardly my boy, my intellectual hero, Robert Persig, who talks about um, how, you know, people talk about changing the world and he just wants to write a good sentence and do a good job fixing the engine of a motorcycle. He says that as a metaphor for exactly what we're talking about. Exactly. Well, Stu, I just want to thank you for, again, taking the time. This, This episode, the last one, it's clear you're a deeply nuanced thinker and, and have done the work. And we just appreciate you sharing the message with others. And I know that, that many will find it as valuable as, as Brad and I have just sitting here having it with you. So keep up the good work and thanks for all that you do. I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys. For those that want to follow Stu, he is um, fairly active on social media. We'll include all of his information in the show notes. Um, He's a really great follow, so highly recommend that you um, that you do that for more insights like this on the regular. So thanks again, Stu. I, I know I speak for Steve in our audience. We love this. Thank you. Thank you.